How do you get somebody to do what you want? I, we don't want to admit that we're the kind of people who do that, do we? Manipulate people into giving us what we want, uh, but we are, right? All of us at one point or another have tried to do exactly that. I want this thing from this person, and so I am going to do these things to get it. Now, there are different approaches you can take, right? You can, you can take, first of all, and, and say, well, maybe I'll be really nice to them and put them in the mood to be really nice to me. That's, that's one way you could go. I'm not going to say that I do that in my marriage. I'm not going to say that. Uh, <laughs> But we all, at different times, you know, I, I want something, and maybe the way to get it is to be nice. But then we can kind of take a bit of a darker turn, too, can't we? Well, I know how to manipulate someone to get this thing that I, I want from them. And there are all sorts of ways we can do that as well. We can be unkind, as a matter of fact. We can be unkind to tear people down so that they will be malleable and willing to do the other things that we want them to do. We can compromise. We can say, well, I'll give you a little bit of this, and you give me a little bit of that. There are all these different ways that we can get people to do what we want them to do. And I think that the Pharisees were trying to do that same thing with God. In Matthew chapter 15, we come across the Pharisees, and they have a challenge for Jesus. You need to understand a couple of things about how the Pharisees came to Jesus in order to really get what's going on. So it says in Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 1, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. They were in Jerusalem. They came to Galilee. That means it, it's sort of like people from New York City going out to Syracuse or people from Los Angeles coming to Lemon Cove. Right? You don't come unless you got a good reason to come. Lemon Cove is not on your way to most places. I mean, we have to stretch this a bit because it's on the way to the park. But people generally drive through. Right? You don't stop in Lemon Cove unless you've got something you want to do. And the same is true here in Matthew chapter 15. The Pharisees were not just on their way to some place in Galilee. And they're like, oh, look, Jesus. No, the Pharisees came to Galilee to Jesus, to find him, because they wanted to challenge him. They wanted to say, who do you think you are, Jesus? And they found a good opportunity to do exactly that. See, Jesus and his disciples, uh, in another gospel, it tells us they were walking through a field. They were on their way to one from one place to another, and on their way, they started just picking raw wheat and eating it, because they were hungry. They were busy. They were in a hurry, and that was the best way that they could get fed. And the Pharisees said, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, of course, we all know that washing your hands before you eat is a good idea, right? Please don't think I'm telling you today to go home and not wash your hands before you eat. But what's in view here is the Pharisees were saying these, you know, Jesus and his disciples are spiritually bankrupt because they're not washing their hands. Does that make sense to you? you know, in the video that we just watched a few moments ago, he said that they thought that the evil spirits would get into their body. I actually, I looked, I couldn't find any evidence that that was the case. 
I think it was more a matter of ritual, of cultic, of religious purity. Because let me tell you a little bit about the Pharisees. You need to know something about the history of Israel. You remember, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) if you're reading along in your Bible, Israel is in Egypt. God takes them to the promised land. They live there for a long time, and then they're really bad, so God punishes them by Assyria coming and invading the northern kingdom, and then Babylon invading the southern kingdom, and all of Israel goes into exile. The people lose their land. And 70 years after the beginning of the Babylonian exile, the people of Israel come back. Cyrus becomes king of the Persian Empire, which now controls that region and that territory. And he says, you can go home. Actually, if if you want to know something interesting, we actually have a copy of Cyrus's proclamation in the Cyrus Cylinder. You can look that up when you get home if you're interested. But there's an interesting place where archaeology and the Bible actually cross paths. So we know historically that this happened. Now, the people of Israel, they return to their native home, return to the promised land. But things aren't good. Things aren't good. They're surrounded by their enemies. You can read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah to see how that goes. They they come back from Babylon to the promised land, and the cities are ruined, and the temple is burned down, and the walls have holes in them. And Nehemiah rebuilds the walls so that the people of Israel can dwell somewhat safely in Jerusalem. And Ezra helps with the the rebuilding of the temple. You can read the prophet Haggai, who talks quite a bit about this. Why do you live in your, your fancy houses while the temple of God lies in ruins? And they rebuild the temple. And when that happens, people cry. They weep. They say, this is so much less than the temple we had before the exile. And Haggai reassures them. He said, it's okay. The important thing isn't the temple you worship in, but the God whom you worship. And he is the same. But see, there are all of these obstacles that people encounter. And maybe the the greatest frustration that they have is that, yes, we are in our land, but it isn't really ours. One king after another comes and invades and dominates and oppresses us. Things are bad. Now, the Pharisees... Everyone, of course, is trying to figure out why are things so bad. Some people say, well, it's because, you know, God's really not that great after all. Maybe we should worship the gods of the land that we live in. Ultimately, maybe we should worship the Roman gods because they seem pretty successful. That Roman Empire is pretty big. Other people say, well, we just gotta, uh, we've got to be holier than we are. And the Pharisees fall into this particular category. They say God must still be angry with us. We must still not be pleasing to God. And so we need to be holier than we've ever been before. We need to be more pure than we've ever been before. And so the Pharisees took the the religious purity laws that the priests had to follow and said, everybody needs to follow these laws. And they said, we're going to help you figure out how to follow these laws. We are going to come up with the traditions of the elders which later is put together into what's known as the Mishnah. You can actually buy a copy of the Mishnah today. I have one uh, at home. It's like this thick, full of rules. And those rules are all about how do you make extra sure that you are obeying God's law. And now we come to the Pharisees and Jesus. The Pharisees are saying, you need to be as ritually pure as the priests 
And the priests have to wash constantly for their temple service. So you need to wash your hands before you eat so that you don't make your food dirty, which then will make you dirty, which will mean that God will continue to be angry with us and we will never be the masters in our own land. So do you, first of all, understand the weight of what the Pharisees are trying to accomplish here? The Pharisees believe that they can bring about the restoral and the restoration of all of God's people if only everyone will just obey the laws. So this is a big deal. The Pharisees see Jesus as a danger to what God wants to do for his people, Israel. And they challenge him. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? You're derailing our whole project to make God happy with us again. Sounds pretty compelling in a lot of ways when we put it that way, doesn't it? I want you to put aside for a moment everything that we've sort of learned about the Pharisees in the past. I want you to pretend we're meeting them for the first time here in chapter 15. Because... We know that Jesus and the Pharisees fight all the time. And we know that Jesus is good. Therefore, the Pharisees must be bad. But let's try and be neutral and objective just for a moment. To step back from the things that we've thought about the Pharisees in the past. Do they have a good goal? What if we lived in a country that was occupied by a foreign nation? And some other people came along and said, we know. We know how to convince God to get that foreign army out of here. Would you want to hear more? Would you think that maybe these are pretty good people? Maybe they're people we should follow, especially when they're people who are better than anyone else at keeping God's laws. If anyone's holy, it's the Pharisees. See, that's what the people in the first century thought. If there's anyone holy, it's the Pharisees. No one keeps the law better than them. The truth is that we like rules, don't we? I mean, we, we like the rules that we want to obey, or we like the rules that we think will get us somewhere, but the truth is that generally we like rules. I, I don't know about you, but each day when I get into the office, I try and make myself a to-do list, right? I write, okay, I need to read my Bible and study for the sermon and, you know, call these people, and, and I put little boxes at the front of each, each line so that when I accomplish them, I can put a little X or a cross through them, or something like that. Does anyone else do that? Yeah. Because yeah. It, it helps you feel like you're getting something done. It's a concrete way of saying, I've accomplished something today. But there's a danger when we bring that same perspective to our life with God. Let's find out what that is. Jesus replied to the Pharisees, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Jesus is saying, God said, Honor your father and mother, and he really means it. He really means it. But you say, the traditions of the elders, all these rules that you've written, say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, Right Here, mom and dad, is, is the money that I have saved to take care of you in your old age. Because remember, in the first century, there are no 401ks. There are children. 
You have children in part to ensure economic stability for yourself in your old age. Your children are your 401k. Talk to your children before you consider them that. The money that should have been devoted to caring for you is now devoted to God. Your law says they don't have to honor their father and mother with that money. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. See, the first thing that Jesus is saying is, hey, Pharisees, you've got all of these rules, but they are not wise like God's rules. Isn't that the danger when we start on a project of our own and we say, I'm going to figure out how to sort all this out, figure out how to make everything right, and then we start to work on it. We realize, I don't, this is too big. The project is too much. I can't think of every contingency. There is a reason why we add new laws in our nation every year. Instead of saying 200 years ago, we came up with a legal code and now it's finished. Is there a single finished legal code in all of the world? No. Because our wisdom does not extend to being able to make a rule for every situation. And even if it did, I don't think that would be a good thing for us. See, this whole idea of honoring your father and your mother, that's frustrating, isn't it? Because you can't easily cross it off the checklist. First of all, it's required of you not once, but throughout your whole life. There's no expiration date on it. Especially in the first century, when when honor and shame were the main currencies, your job was not just to take care of your parents while they were alive, but to ensure their good name even after they were dead. That obligation to honor your father and mother never, ever went away. You can't just cross it off a checklist. And here's the other problem. Let's take father and mother. Jesus, this is the example Jesus chose. It must be a good one. So let's, let's take this. Parents get older, don't they? Some of you have uh, parents who are older, and maybe their health isn't what it was. Maybe uh, they can't really be on their own anymore. And you're struggling and grappling with, well, what do we do about that? How do we take care of, of parents who are failing in those ways? Some of you may be the failing parents, and you're saying, oh, no, I don't want my fate to be in my children's hands. So tell them, It's good not to set up the rules, but to constantly wrestle with honor your father and mother. Because what if we tried to write rules for how we we handled that end, those end stages of our parents' lives? What if we tried to write rules? Maybe it would be, uh, okay, here's the rule. No matter what, you have to personally take care of your parents when they die. Or not when they die, when, when they're failing. Well, what if you got to work? Okay, well, let's make another rule, right? If you have to work, then you can get some home health care. Well, what if you work and you still can't afford home health care? Okay, well, if you, if you have to work and you still can't afford home health care, then maybe you can put them in a home, right? So first of all, what do you think a lot of folks are going to do with those rules? They're going to find a way to get to the easy solution, aren't they? See, that's, 
that's what Jesus is primarily criticizing the Pharisees for. Because the Pharisees wouldn't have said, You're, you know, we were unaware of that flaw in the law, that you know, whatever you give to the temple, you, know, you can't give to your parents. We're aware that that's a problem. They would have known that was a real issue. It was a loophole. They didn't intend to write the rules that way. But I think Jesus is telling the Pharisees, if you write rules such that you don't have to wrestle with the requirements of God's commands in your lives, you are not going to end up living the way that God has called you to live. Now, before you get out your stones to stone me this morning, because I just made everyone's lives a lot harder, didn't I? I want you to think about the way that God operates in our lives. Have any of you ever experienced God saying, okay, uh, here I am appearing to you, or maybe he sends you an angel, and the angel says, here's what's about to happen in your life, okay? And, and here are the seven things that you need to do in order to be successful in that situation. Has anyone here ever had that happen to them? No. Is it because God's not paying attention? Is it because he doesn't care? Is it because he's secretly up there like, <laughs> this is going to be so hard. This is going to be great. We're going to put it on YouTube when they screw everything up. Is that what God is like? Or let me phrase this to you another way. When God sent Jesus to die for our sins, did he send a man who was already 30 years old, send him immediately to the cross and get that done? Or did he say, you are going to struggle through the experience because of what it will teach the people around you, because of how it will bless their lives, and because of what you will learn in the process? See, Jesus is fully human, but also fully God. He is the Son of God. He knows everything, but you know what he doesn't have is human experience. And Jesus takes... The Son of God takes that on in the person of Jesus Christ. And now, now he knows not just all the facts about our existence, but what it's like to live those facts. See, God values the process because the process makes a better end, doesn't it? God wants us to wrestle with the hard things in life. And he gives us enough to get to the end, starting with his law. See, his law is enough. Honor your father and your mother. Love the Lord your God. Now balance those two in the appropriate way. That's a lifelong project. And that's why we live a lifetime long. The first reason that Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for their rules is he says you cannot make good enough rules and they will short-circuit what God is trying to do in the lives of his people. There's something hopeful about this because the Pharisees would have looked at, at the last uh, four or 500 years and said, all this wasted time when we weren't masters in our own land, it was worthless. And God would say, I was building something out of that. I was building up to Jesus Christ. But there's something else that Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for. He says, you've got, you don't make the right laws, first of all. And secondly, 
Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. See, there's another danger in our relationship with God, that if if we make it about keeping certain rules and marking them off our list and getting them done, we're not actually having a relationship with God, are we? Do your closest relationships consist of a whole bunch of rules all the time? In order to have a good friendship with this person, you know, I need to uh, write them three times a week or I'm a bad friend. Or I need to, uh, I need to uh, make sure I show up every single time that something bad happens in their lives. You can't promise that, can you? Something bad might be happening in your life at the same time. See, the truth is that rules become about the things that we do instead of about the people that we are in relationship with. And when we start making rules to keep people happy, we're starting to think of them as, an, as a burden and as a responsibility instead of as our friend and our father. To do all these things to keep God. Think about this. We do this in our own lives, don't we? God must not be happy with me today. I didn't read my Bible. You ever feel like that? God must not be happy with me today. I, I did this sin probably doesn't love me as much today as he did yesterday. Is that the way your relationships work? I know that, that sin and, and failure can create sort of gaps in our relationships, right? But most of the time, they don't change the nature of them. We still love each other. We know that we're all going to mess up. Husbands and wives are going to hurt each other. It's going to happen. I don't say this on the wedding day. <laughs> but it's going to happen. Do we stop being husbands and wives just because we're going to totally mess it up on some days? Friends are going to fail to be there for each other. It's going to happen. Are we going to stop having friends just because someday they might let us down? No. And that's not how our relationship with God is meant to work either, because God's not even like us. See, his anger and our anger, they're very different sorts of things. We're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you disrespected me that way. I, when I worked at the bank, I remember one day uh, there was a guy, I worked at the corporate headquarters branch, and so all the, the big bosses were upstairs. And one of them used to come down every day at a certain time, and he would wait for five to ten minutes until everyone else showed up, and they'd all go to lunch. And I said to him one day, uh, hey, you know, I notice you're always down here every day at this, at this time, and you're ahead of everyone waiting for lunch. You know, why, why don't you show up five or ten minutes later? He, says, uh, he said, well, I'm never late because telling some, you know, being late is telling someone you don't respect them. And I made a note at that moment to never be late for that guy. <laughs> but we can take that pretty far, can't we? That's not how God operates. See, even before God, his purpose in Jesus Christ was to take everything wrong that we've ever done, past, present, and future, and fix it already. We never have to worry about our relationship with the Father or with Jesus or with the Holy Spirit in that way. He has already made up his mind about us, and he never, ever changes his mind. It's the same every day. 
Did you commit the worst sin of your life yesterday? Is it in front of you tomorrow? God is still going to love you and care for you in the same way every day. But when we make up rules, we can't see that anymore, can we? God must not love me as much today because of that sin, because of that failure, because I didn't show up and do that good thing. Rules ruin our relationship with the Father. See, God's rules were never completely about, if you don't do all of these things, I won't love you. God's rules were about, here's what the good life looks like. Here's the way the world works. And you can live like that too. You can be a part of the good life. It's fascinating. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that the law was our babysitter until Jesus came. See, the law was good. It told us, well, no, don't go over there. That's not going to be a good place for you. Do go over here. That will bless you and the people around you. But it was never the defining characteristic of our relationship with our God. And when we make the rules or the law that defining characteristic, we're actually missing out on who God is in the first place. Our hearts are far from him. See, that's what God really cares about. He cares about making new hearts in us. While the people of Israel were facing exile, all these horrible things that we've been talking about, God made them a promise through the prophet Jeremiah. In chapter 31, verses 33, This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel, the promise that will abide between them and me. It's not going to be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke that covenant. Even though I was faithful, I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the new covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer will they teach each to the other. Know the Lord because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. That's not about keeping rules, is it? It's about God giving us a new heart, about God giving us new life. And see, if that's what he's, if that's what he's willing to do, then all we need to do is just wake up and try again each day. Not worry, does God love me today? But say, how can I draw closer to the Lord today through all the ways that he's left me? How can I enjoy the life that God has already won for me in Jesus Christ today? How can I live in such a way that other people are going to be invited to meet Jesus as well? Because it was never about the rules. It was about something altogether more wonderful and much more difficult Trusting that God really means what he says. Trusting that God loves me every day, not because of who I am, but because of who he is. About seeking and pursuing him, recognizing that I'm putting off an old life full of rules and laws so that I can enter into a new life where I follow them because of what my heart is like. 
That's ultimately what I think Jesus leaves us out of this controversy with the Pharisees. One last thing I want to say about it. You know, uh, God records this incident with the Pharisees for us. He intentionally said, I want people throughout history, even in Lemon Cove in 2021, in the month of May, I want them to encounter this story. And it's not because he says, I want them to look and go, man, those Pharisees were so dumb. Not because he wants us to read where Jesus says to the disciples, "Uh, are you still so dull? And say, man, we're so much better than those dumb disciples. But he wants us to see how we are naturally inclined to be like them both. Naturally inclined to say, preacher, every sermon, I want you to give me three things to do so that God will be happy with me this week. Had that conversation with some of you. And let me tell you, I am so sympathetic to it. I wish that God would give me the three things each week that I could do. So that I could say, I've done my job, I've done my duty, and I'm, now I'm done. <laughs> I can move on. But you see again, I've done my job, now I can move on away from that relationship with God. Get on with the stuff I really want to do. See, a lot of what God wants us to do is wrestle. Wrestle with these things. Wrestle with what it means to just be loved. Not because of anything we've done, but because of who God is. Wrestle with what it means to be people who have clean hearts so that goodness naturally flows out of us. Clean hearts by the Holy Spirit. Wrestle with what it means each and every day. How do I love my parents when it's hard? How do I take care of all these responsibilities that are really legitimately part of my life in such a way that at all times I am still... remember? What Jesus said the whole law is summed up in? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourselves. How do I live every moment of my life loving the people who matter? God and my neighbor, which ultimately is everyone. Thanks a lot, God. That's not hard at all. We got to be careful when we come to the book of rules. Because the rules will never replace God's law. We'll always get it wrong. And because the rules threaten to substitute a checklist for a heart that is close with God.